Hi, everyone. Hi, Tim. Hi, Davina. Hi, good to meet you. I'm so glad you could be here. Thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> so we're here to discuss your amazing book, which I've been just, I've read and reread many chapters of this. But before we get into that, how are things in your neck of the woods? Um, you know, all considering, they're, they're pretty great. Um, you know, things are crazy right now. I'm in the South Park neighborhood of Seattle mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And um, I think it's one of the best kept secrets of all of Seattle. There's a lot of social capital here, meaning like people who know and care about each other. So we're getting by as best we can. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, like I'm sure a lot of people tuning in, it's a crazy time right now. Yeah, and I just felt like your book was so timely for what is happening in this moment and thinking mm -hmm. about finding the church in our neighborhood when we're all, some of us forced to be outside of our buildings for the first time in a long time and to seriously yeah. consider what's happening all around us. So, I, I mean, I loved the book for that reason and for many other reasons. So I'm just looking at all the people who are joining us. So I'm seeing Debbie, I'm seeing Charmaine, Sheree, no, <laughs> lots of people are here today. Adam, I'm glad to see an audience that represents like a diversity of neighborhood context, both yeah. in Canada and I'm seeing a couple people from the States as well. So I think it will be interesting to think through how what you're describing in the book applies across different context because yeah. every neighborhood has its own sort of flavor to it but I think yeah. a lot of what you outline can serve as universal approaches to how you can think about and better connect with your neighborhood. Um, so before we get started you are the co-founding director of the Parish Collective and for those who don't know um, about what it is could you describe what you guys are all about? Sure. Well, I think this is pretty true in both Canada and the U.S. that the church in general has become, for lots of reasons, uh, somewhat displaced and disembodied and disconnected and, frankly, like disorganized, meaning like not organized unto God's dream in our neighborhoods. And so the parish collective exists to try and identify and connect everyday followers of Jesus to be the church in their neighborhood. Uh, on behalf of what God is doing. So it's a, it's essentially, a, it's a network of people and congregations and communities uh, all over the world, but mostly in North America that are wrestling with how do we become the church in our everyday neighborhood setting. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's like right up my alley. <laughs> um, one of the things that I found very interesting is how you defined church or the church in this book I know church is this like very vague and amorphous term like we use it to refer to groups of people or buildings or all yeah. sorts of things no one can quite pin down what it means or what it should look like but how do you think about church well uh you know in the book I tell this little story that um he's now 10 years old but when my first son was like two or three and starting to speak a lot um I convinced my wife to go along with this kind of parent hack where uh, we, well, I should say that uh, I studied rhetoric in, in uh, university. Mm -hmm. And so words mean a great deal to me. 
And I had a professor who said that words create worlds. That's some people have probably heard that idea. Like our words actually matter a lot. So when we use that word church, uh, and it carries a lot for us. And so getting back to my, my son, Lucas, uh, when he was learning to speak, we made a deal that he would never say the words. We wouldn't teach him and even kind of allow him to say like, mommy, daddy, are we going to church? Uh, we'd say like, no, that's not, that's like literally not how you talk. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> It's like saying, are we going to the basketball team? I'm like, no. Uh, you can say, are we going to the church building or the liturgy or the gathering or the program? But no, the church is, that's a people. It's its a team. So how, how I've taught him to define it is it is Christians in the neighborhood who are joining in God's dreams on behalf of that place. That's how I would define the church. And of course, uh, even with that, that has to be understood with kind of a networked, and global understanding because we can still have blind spots within our own places. But uh, yeah, that's how I would define the church. So when you talk about discovering the church right where you are, it's really about discovering those networks and finding ways to pour into them and deepen your relationships with them. Is that kind of just it? Yeah, that's a big part of it because mm -hmm. uh, there is, you know, I don't know if this is just, I, I think this is pretty true as much in Canada as here, but you tell me if this feels correct. There's a lot of anxiety and fear about the church right now. And this was before COVID, even more so probably now. And uh, within all that anxiety, there can be the temptation that we just need to like fix the church and we need to grow the church. And those are understandable impulses. But the truth is if we would just look at what we already have. If we would almost, if we could like what, I don't know if this is how it works with God, but like literally like shine a light on all of God's children who are already present, already love God in the way of Jesus, wanna be about making their neighborhoods better. In Canada and the US, even in kind of a post-Christendom culture, there's still a ton of us. I mean, mm -hmm. hundreds and sometimes thousands in every neighborhood. And yet, what capacity do we have to get together and even know one another, much less work together, pray together? So yeah, I think um, this is not an argument against inviting people to follow in the way of Jesus, but the truth is there are already so many of us. And so what could happen if we could identify and connect at the local level and be, begin to plot and scheme? And of course that's gonna require something of a path, which is why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And I just think, just thinking about my own networks and people that I encounter through my own work, there are so many people that don't necessarily connect with the church in the traditional sense. They don't necessarily connect with what it means to sit in pews on Sunday and go to worship. Their, their faith is very active and outside of the walls of the building and mm -hmm. it's just that is how they live out their faith it's not a, a lesser way of going about things it's just an untraditional way and I think it can be sometimes difficult for those who speak to the decline of the church and there is a decline of very many ways of doing church very many old ways of doing church and some ways of doing church frankly, need to go. So there are things that are dying, but there also are a lot of things that are growing and thriving and flourishing, that it's difficult for um, those with more 
traditional, a more traditional lens to recognize, I find, because I mm. see amazing mm. people, amazing young people. There's a lot of discussion about how young people are so disconnected from the church, but I see amazing young people leading these initiatives, sometimes with zero support. They're just mm-hmm. going out there and doing it because they feel called to do that. And they might not look like your traditional pastor or minister or congregant who would come to Sunday service, but it's just, I mean, I think that is church to me. Yeah. I mean, there are so many amazing people and amazing things happening right now. And it like the, the quantity and quality of our hope for the church is often predicated on where we're looking. And so if you're looking in pews and in buildings, it might feel like a meltdown. But if you look on the street and if you show up in coffee shops and neighborhood associations and um, be discerning as to where God is at work, it might feel like a movement to you. So where we look and how we look matters a great deal as to uh, where we're feeling hopeful. And that I think is to borrow an incredible phrase from a theologian named Willie Jennings, hope is a discipline. And uh, I feel like it's needed now more than ever. Yeah, and I, I feel like especially in this time right now where people are seeking connection and relationship and just some guidance in the midst of this time of uncertainty, I think churches are the church in this particular time are called to do something very special and live into um, that promise to love your neighbors and to just just be there for people. And I think sometimes when churches are struggling in, in moments like that, it, it can speak to a disconnection with their neighborhoods. Like there mm-hmm. are churches that have been in neighborhoods for frankly, hundreds of years sometimes, Mm -hmm. that when things happen locally, they don't know what to do or where to start because they haven't been doing that work. And then there are people who exist within local organizations outside of the church sometimes who are just right there. And I want to cultivate more of that within the church, but sometimes I get a little bit of resistance within the traditional church. So what are your thoughts on a coming together of those who are doing church where they are and those who are doing church in a more traditional way? Like, is there any way of reconciling the two? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Such a good question, Jordana. I think that um, how we go about that obviously matters a great deal. And I think that the, in some ways, the order of the questions or the order of our path is going to determine the quality of our journey. So, I think that the first place to begin, if both kind of camps are willing, is to discern an area, a geographic area of some sense of holistic responsibility. It's literally a place to listen, a place to pay attention, a place to be curious about, about what God is up to. And if you've got that, well, then you can, this, I, these are basically make up the first three chapters, actually, of the book is, uh, maybe it's in the first half of the book is, a lot of times in church world, <laughs> this is totally understandable, especially with decline and anxiety. Mm-hmm. We ask a lot of church questions, right? Um, and then the thing is, if you ask a lot of church questions, like how do we 
fix our churches, you end up with church answers. And mm -hmm. that's totally understandable, but I don't think it's going to get us to where we need to go. And so if we, if we turn it around, I borrow from the um, writer, Simon Sinek, who wrote that book, Start With Why. He did a TED talk called Start With Why that yeah. by a billion people. Um, what he says is that uh, great leaders, great organizations, great movements um, have done the hard work of wrestling through their why or their big purpose. And that's at their center. And from there you move to how you go about pursuing that why. And from there you, you go about what you do. And what the claim that I'm trying to make in the book in part is that a lot of us as churches, we think that the church is actually the point. Like we think the church itself is the why. We think that uh -huh. church growth or church survival is our big reason for existence. And it's not, and it never will be. So if you put those two ideas of we have a place to listen and we're going to have the courage and imagination to say, what are God's hopes and dreams and desires for this place that we're paying attention to? Well, that can give us our big why. I mean, those, the kind of theological language for that is the shalom of God, the beloved community. Some indigenous communities have been, have used like the phrase of the harmony way. What we're getting at is the reconciliation and renewal of everything. But, as people and as communities, we're limited to our bodies and we live in time and place. So we need to get after where we actually live and move and have our being, not just globally. Uh, so that would be the, I mean, that's easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, it is possible. There is another way possible of being the church, but we have to take place seriously and we have to take God's activity in it very seriously. Mm-hmm. So when people are saying things like young people are so disconnected from the church, the church is in decline, how would you respond to them? Like what, what is it specifically that they're not seeing or where are they not looking? Because there are a lot of people in discussions that I have about the future of the church who are just, things are on fire. It's all yeah. in decline. Young yeah, people bad. don't care. We can't get their attention. We've tried. They don't care. They don't care. And that's not my experience, but that's, it's a hard place to start the conversation when that is sometimes how people feel. And I understand the anxiety. I understand sure. the pressures, the financial anxiety. You have these big old buildings you're trying to maintain and take care of. You're also trying to invest in mission. You're, there's just a lot. Congregations are shrinking and aging, but how, how do you go about, I mean, helping people see things in a, a different way when they're in that state of just survival mode and it's, it's all bad? Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? I haven't done a lot of work on this, but um, mm -hmm. you know that just as people, like when we're freaked out and we're scared, if we've been even traumatized, our mm -hmm. bodies have normal <laughs> reactions. You know, our heart rates mm -hmm. go up, shortness of breath, um, the amygdala, kind of takes over, which is the fight or flight part of our brain. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has been happening uh, within the church for quite some time now. Like we just freak out and we think we need a fix. We need to, or we need to shut it down. And mm -hmm. I think, I think what we have to do is take a very collective deep breath, realize that the change that we're longing for is ultimately God's and not ours. So we can kind of mm -hmm. literally relax for a second. And from there, I think it's best to begin with um, seeing if we're on the, honestly, the same page. And some, a lot of this gets to language. Like, 
Um, I feel like in the in North America, I think this is pretty true across both U.S. and Canada. The practical imagination of what the church is and what the church is for feels like it's up for grabs. What I mean by that is if you, even in a single congregation, if you just like brought people into a room, say if you brought all your elders into a, a room by themselves, ask them, what is the church and what is it for? Please keep it to a sentence or two sentences. Great. You, re you read it down, you record them, you know, thank you very much. Next. I think it'd be very rare for all of those elders or deacons or clergy or just everyday people to give you the same answer. So until we actually can agree, I'm not, I mean, this is, I mean, it's just basic <laughs> communication. Like until we can actually agree what we're talking about, I mean, there are so many powerful forces pulling us apart, powerful incentivized forces pulling us apart that we're not going to come to terms unless we literally define them. And uh, I think that's where we have to begin. So, uh, and that's not, that's without even like a, a, a thesis of what the church is. That's just saying literally like, how do we understand this thing? And, mm -hmm. you know, that's different sometimes across um, generations. It's, it's different across theological tradition. It's, it's can be different across different ethnicities. Um, there is more and more, my friend Leroy Barber talks about how much innovation is sparked with difference and that is true. Uh, it's also true that with difference comes the ruthless interrogation of what we're talking about. Otherwise, we can really miss each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just, like circling back to what you mentioned about difference, I think um, just thinking about my own context and thinking about the United Church, for example, mm -hmm. um, there have been a lot of talks, especially in light of everything that's happening in terms of issues of racial justice, mm -hmm. about just the church envisioning a more multicultural future because it's a it's a it's a white denomination yeah. um and thinking about difference as a strength thinking about difference is something that can just spark a new imagining of what the church can be and drawing on the differences that exist around us in local communities i think it's so important and it may shake up what that church is or what that church means when you have those early discussions and come together. But I think at this point, I mean, just thinking about the United Church specifically, again, that is something that is so needed. I almost feel like there needs to be like a complete cultural shift. I don't know how many generations it will take to do that. But I think that sometimes as a church, you can develop as sort of like an island unto yourself and you're not seeing all of the local diversity and vibrancy mm -hmm. that exists just right in your neighborhood that you can draw from and how much that would enrich your church. So I think a lot of churches right now are in this mode of having this reckoning of with issues of social justice. And I think a lot of white churches specifically are starting to mm -hmm. really think about what are we holding on to? What are we missing out on by not connecting, especially with those within our own local neighborhoods who just look different or are different. And yep. I love the way that the parish model that you talk about allows for really just um, drawing from and cultivating whatever that local 
diversity is. It's not about building these these islands within the neighborhood. It's about really uplifting and pouring into the neighborhood. And I think that's something that's just so needed with more traditional churches. I so agree, Jordana. I think it's beautifully said. There's a, uh, a friend of mine who, um, his name is Dr. Randy Whitley. He's an indigenous leader. He lives in Oregon. And uh, I read about this in the book. And I think it's a good example of <clears throat> kind of a metaphor for a lot of white churches and institutions. Um, he lives on a farm and he um, has been cultivating it with a lot of diverse kind of both biomimicry and um, all kinds of like really fertile, diverse plants. And when you're there, <clears throat> pardon me, it's just amazing. Well, surrounding his farm is this, I, I think it was like a walnut, uh, farm it literally like encircles him and it's one crop so monoculture versus diverse cultures that we even see in nature and it is like it's sick literally like it's despairing it's it's uh -huh. um you look around and every single thing is the same a ton of pesticide is needed to keep it going in fact he told me a story like they have to spray like twice a year and literally like they're they get sick uh, when you contrast the monoculture, which was never intended with the beautiful, diverse, I mean, in, in nature, um, the most abundant places is, are, are, you know, where the ocean meets the sand, where, uh, you know, wet wetlands. And um, these are like the most incredible areas where there's teeming with life, coral reefs. So I think that is important for us to grapple with, not just as like saying no to say white supremacy, which has to happen and louder and louder and louder, but also there's an invitation there. Like what we're doing, it's not like what we're doing has been working or is healthy. So there's a no that we have to say, there's also a lot of yeses. Um, and I do think you're right. I think place and parish gives us that opportunity. In fact, back to Dr. Jennings again, who I would highly recommend everyone read, um, He's got a very thick book called The Christian Imagination, which is mm -hmm. stunning. And he's got a, a commentary on the book of Acts, which is incredible. Uh, and he writes a lot on the intersection of race and Christianity and place. And he says that race is a matter of geography. If you look back as to how it began, um, has to do with uh, the taking of land. And if we don't reimagine that land, his if I'm reading him correctly, his argument is that we're not going to uh, stop racial injustice until we deal with the land. And I think that's powerful. Mm -hmm. it's, it's our work to do. Mm -hmm. And I just, thinking about the parish as that unit of action and that community of um, just cultivating these incredible initiatives and cultivating what churches and what it means, what initially sparked your interest in being place-based and really focusing on the neighborhood and like how did that come about for you because I know even in my own work that's such a strong focus for me so sometimes I take for granted that that is not um, straightforward or necessarily intuitive for mm -hmm. everyone so I don't know if you can recall a moment where that really kind of hit home for you or how did that come about in your own work? Well um not necessarily all at once, but over 
time when I was in graduate school studying theology, um, it was more of a drip, but I became, I mean, this is embarrassing and I do write about this too. Uh, I, it's embarrassing to even say it out loud, but I basically went to seminary because I wanted to be like a, a rock star pastor, you know, like, <laughs> like great sermons, draw a big crowd. I mean, that was the, there's even, a, <laughs> there's a line in the book of how Rob Bell gave me a savior's complex, which is true, mm-hmm. but um, it's not his fault. Um, <laughs> But that is like what I was excited about. Like, that's what I saw. That was like, there was life there and people, people outside of the Christian tradition were coming into services and that whole movement. And so there's a lot of things to celebrate there. But mm-hmm. over time, uh, it became more and more apparent to me that the most exciting thing would be to try and knit together a team at the neighborhood level. And I did not know how to do that. I went to a really good seminary and they didn't necessarily train me to do that. Um, and so if the leadership task is to nurture and in a sense pastor an entire neighborhood, including growing a church within it, um, but in some ways like seeking to hearken back to this somewhat ancient idea of the parish or holistic responsible responsibility for a geographic area, I just, at the time, did not know where to turn. And in some ways, that's that's how the Parish Collective as an organization began, is um, looking for friends and colleagues where they were from that were having the same kind of longings and desires, but didn't have friends to talk to, didn't have best practices. Now, looking back on it, there were a lot that we were you know blind to, but um, it doesn't change the fact that we just didn't, we looked around, we didn't know. So. Um, What's true is there are hundreds and thousands of people all across Canada, all across the U.S. who are having, I think, by the spirit of God, are being stirred up with these longings and desires. But a lot of us are still disconnected. We don't know about each other. And mm-hmm. I'm convinced that there is a still rumbling at the ground level, a movement that's yet to be made fully visible. And I'm really committed to making that happen uh, as best I can in my limited space. I love that. And I think finding people within your neighborhood who are very kind of mission aligned in a certain sense is such an important initial step because you can't always see everything. You don't always know everything. So I think just thinking about connecting to those local organizations that are already doing the work and not trying to reinvent the wheel or those neighborhood or local champions every community has those people if you are a local church and you don't know them or you can't see them i feel like that is step one to getting plugged into your neighborhood um i hear that you guys at the parish collective also do all sorts of like gatherings and stuff to get people together but now in this era of the pandemic i don't know how Mm -hmm. like are you rethinking what it means to gather or like how are you still maintaining connection with people and how are you still maintaining relationship given that your model and the way forward that you see is so relational like you can't just Mm -hmm. walk through your neighborhood and necessarily bump into someone and spark a conversation in the way that you would before this all happened we're sort of a afraid of each other and at a distance from each other at this point and increasingly I guess I get online and staying home but so how are you rethinking connection and what it means to be in or a part of a, a parish at this time 
Such a good question, Jordana. I, um, well, on the, and some of the things the parish collective has been doing, we just, it looks like uh, Kathy just said here that she was at the Inhabit at Home that we did a couple weeks ago. And um, it was actually pretty amazing because I, I'll be honest, I was scared that it wouldn't, like, it was our, t this is 10 years we've done the Inhabit conference. And it has, you know, events kind of ha take on their uh, kind of culture and feel of their own. And uh, that's certainly true for Inhabit. It's something that I think is really wonderful. And I didn't know if that would translate online at all. But I, I think it did. In fact, people even tuning in now, they can still, um, we made it available for the rest of August to kind of check it out. Um, mm -hmm. It's It was a combination of like live MCs and recorded talks and then live, you know, workshops and things like that. It wasn't the same, of course, but it did. It it worked for, for our purposes. There's some beautiful music commissioned. Um, but I would say that, so that's kind of at the broader scale and we're wrestling with what does it, what's that gonna mean? I think that we're gonna be about, we're gonna have these limitations with us for at least a year. And so there's organizationally, we're wrestling with those questions obviously right now. At the neighborhood level, uh, obviously this is completely different in every neighborhood as to mm -hmm. how deeply entrenched your city, your town, your county, your province is wrestling with infection rates. But um, I will say that I think that COVID has been apocalyptic in the sense that it has unveiled and revealed a lot of what was already there. Um, that's what the word apocalyptic means is to mm -hmm. uncover. And so my hope, and I've seen this happen in my neighborhood, but I haven't been in too many other neighborhoods, is that the social capital, like the amount of trust that people had between neighbors before this now matters all the more. And you know that's true with anything that happens. That's true with a wave of gentrification. That's true if there's a natural um, disaster. That's true with this pandemic. I guess you could call it a natural disaster. Mm -hmm. um, so I, my hope right now is how with obviously being appropriately safe how how could we cultivate whether it might be backyard barbecues where there's distance um my wife and i own a coffee shop and we can you know legally have 25 percent of people be open and we've opened up more space outside so um it's harder obviously uh -huh. but there's also a sense in which you know this is different in canada but in seattle you know like we only get a couple snowstorms a year and so when it actually snows, like it shuts, there's so many hills here that it, it's, like, down. And all of a sudden it's very like, different in Canada. I will say very that different, <laughs> in Seattle and in other parts of the state, when it actually snows or if there's like a flood or something, you wake up to what was already there in a whole different way. And I feel like, yeah, this is a long, this is a long journey and it's going to get longer, but I think we're having to pay attention to what is around us at a higher level. And so if we can be ruthlessly curious about, the people and the gifts that are right here and try and make as many connections as we can, even if it's, you know, a conversation six to 10 feet apart. Um, I think it's going to matter all the more what we do now, because both in the church and in our broader culture, uh, there are so many profound changes that are swirling all around us right now. It's hard to get a sense of it, but my bet, is that um, a lot of the changes that a lot of us were longing for are, are going to be accelerated. And so 
I think, and this is a, 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 a little bit of how we've been thinking about the Parish Collective, and that is that this year is going to be more like a cocoon in the sense of what could emerge in this kind of extended, forced, almost reflective sabbatical season. Uh, obviously, there's all kinds of struggle and issues with that. This is not just like we're all just hanging out and mm -hmm. having a blast. There's real bills to pay. There's real illnesses. There's like, it's real. I don't want to downplay it. But there might be some forced and unhit, uncovered. We, we, there might be gifts that we could uncover. Mm -hmm. And I think that those gifts that we could uncover now could affect the trajectory of our neighborhoods in really profound ways for years and potentially decades. So I think it's a critical time for us to be praying really hard, to be connecting as best we can, to be taking a breath, even though there's a lot of anxiety swirling. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in moments like this, we can be afraid to take that breath because there is that anxiety and there's so much that's going on. And again, as we spoke about earlier, you kind of get into this survival mode yeah. Yeah. and it can be difficult when you're in survival mode to be in a space of imagining and dreaming and re-envisioning and doing the work that is just needed so much so. And I'm seeing a lot of people echo your thoughts about that forced acceleration. And I, I just think it's such, I mean, it, a lot of change has been needed for a very long time in many denominations. Yeah. And that change just needed, could be kind of precipitated by a time of reflection or discernment or imagining. And I think there's just something that happened that, well, with the virus and everything that, as you mentioned, did accelerate it, but it also kind of opened up this space to imagine and envision and figure out what can happen for the church next that I think many denominations weren't quite ready for. Like they would never be having those discussions about like going online or like connecting with their neighbors in new ways or helping the essential workers that exist locally outside of their walls beyond like the um, food banks that they have within churches oftentimes. Like how do you reach people more broadly. So there is this tension between being in survival mode, but also being in a space of dreaming and envisioning and just thinking about what's next. That can be a little bit, I think, crazy making for some in this time of pandemic. But I think just both are so needed. We need to be thinking about how we're going to meet very real needs of the organizations that we run and how we're going to offer support to those in our communities. But at the same time, be open and willing to think about kind of what's next. And I see many people echoing that need, so. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Jordana, there's a, this is I think true for the church and uh, in our broader culture across our cities. Um, some people have talked about kind of three interconnected but different uh, approaches to change. Mm -hmm. One, you could call relief like we we all all needed that and, and kind of felt that as this started and shut down like there was an outpouring of beautiful interdependent care um you see this if there's like a flood or a tornado or something like that like relief is important but it should usually be kind of short you know it shouldn't if, if you get into a pattern where relief is how you just function as your hope 
of change, it actually can do damage. Mm -hmm. So you need to move to more of a kind of a, a development or community development approach, which is thinking longer term. Um, and often has to, well, almost always, I think always definitely includes the people for whom are feeling the effects of it. Like they are the leaders as opposed to the outside experts. So that would be a second. And then of course there's systems change. Um, and, and that has to do with policy. That has to do with how we structure things that has to do with defining language. And, um, all three of these are kind of swirling all the time. But I think that as churches, if we can even ask those questions right now, because it does all feel so up in the air in a sense, like what is ours to do that's more in the realm of relief? Are there neighbors we can care for? Are there funds that we can contribute to? Are there, is there rent that we need to be paying for people uh -huh. right now? We also have to be thinking, what could we be doing with a kind of a three, five, 10 year imagination to really get after it? That's more the development. And then like, we have a moment here. Um, we're feeling this. How, how do we take our best shot at some like true systemic change? And what does that look like? And how do we contribute? And what is the process to do that? All three of those are critical questions. But if you try and answer the systemic question with the relief, you know, it, you get yourself in trouble. There's a lot of, mm -hmm. frankly, kind of colonizing logic around that. Um, so I think those are, for me anyway, a lot of churches that we're working with, those are helpful questions to be thinking through in this time. Like, how, how, how do we see them as interconnected but distinct? Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to sort of, as we close out this discussion, get to some of the tactical parts around how we're going to think about the future of the church and actually do the work of cultivating what it is that's already happening in our parishes. So I wanted to, before I get into that, I'd love if um, some of the people watching, if you have any um, fresh expressions of what it means to be church that are happening in your own local neighborhood that you're aware of or that you'd love people to know about or uplift. I'd love if you'd put those in the comments just so we can get a sense of what it is that's happening in your own neighborhood. So if you're watching and you have any sense of fresh expressions of church or the church in your neighborhood, definitely share those because there are many people doing many things in, in different ways. It's all about using your own unique gifts I find so everyone is going to approach what it means to be church in just such a different way um, so when someone is thinking about um, either starting an initiative or getting more plugged into an initiative I mean there, there are so many moving parts there's a lot to think about there's a lot to take in and I'm sure as you started to build out Parish Collective you started to <laughs> just think about all of these moving parts and learn more and more about um, what it would kind of shape up to be. But if there is someone locally who wants to either get plugged into an initiative that's already happening locally, I don't know if there's chapters of Parish Collective or if there would be a chapter locally in their neighborhood, but if someone just wants to get plugged in or start their own initiative, is there any advice that you would give someone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would begin, um, by discerning and it, it does take a little discerning like what is your parish or your neighborhood like how do you define it um how we talk about it in the book the new parish and i borrow again from in the in everywhere you look is it's a geographic area that's 
big enough to live a lot of life, kind of live, work, play, but small enough to be known as a character within the story of that place. So in a lot of urban neighborhoods, it will be the actual neighborhood that's kind of designated by the city. But in more suburban contexts, it might be half the suburb, the whole suburb. It depends. So you have to kind of think about it. It might be a bit wider. And in more rural settings, it's probably going to be quite large. It could be, you know, 60, 70 kilometers surrounded by, uh, you know, a, a couple pubs and the post office and, you know, a grocery store or whatever. Um, and so I think that's a fascinating place to begin because that then gives you the place to listen. And I think that's where everything begins is listening to what God is up to, listening to what the spirit could be doing, listening for who's already involved, um, celebrating the, the ordinary heroes that are there, learning the history of that place uh, as far back as you can go. I think those are all really critical starting places. Um, and then, as a resource, I mean, that that is in part what the Parish Collective exists for. So if you go to parishcollective.org, we have been trying hard to make as many connections as we can. So you can literally like sign up. It's kind of like an internal social network. You can yeah. map like your intersection or your, even your address and then uh, see there might be some people that are that are close to you. And at least, you know, yeah, they're like these are people that have a similar longing. You don't have to be best friends, but it's pretty, pretty helpful to know that they're around. And if they're not, hopefully that's grist for the mill to um, find more people and and make those connections. Mm -hmm. I think that's such great advice. So starting with listening and starting with trying to connect with people locally and starting to, I mean, it can be tough to do the work of listening. It's not just kind of going to one or two local events or speaking with one or two people. It does take time to really deeply listen in the way that you're referring to. And it's about being open, it's about being very honest, and it's about just taking the position of almost like the learner, even if you're the most senior leader in your organization, like listening is something that we take for granted, but listening is, it's a skill and it's something that we need to take seriously in um, building these initiatives locally. So I do love starting with listening and kind of finding your crew or finding your people. And I'm seeing Drew in the comments likes that. <laughs> Kathy hey, is Drew. speaking to um, some of the uh, meetings that they've had in their front or backyards and just there are things that are happening locally and there are things to get plugged into. So whether that is the parish collective or whether that is starting your own initiative, I think one of the most important things that um, Tim has identified for you all today is there are people out there. <laughs> there yeah. are like-minded people. There are things that are already happening that you can pour into. There are people that you can kind of seek out and be connected with and do the work together in community. And I hope that's like a, a takeaway, if anything, from what we spoke about today. If you do feel perhaps um, that you're drifting from a more traditional vision of what the church looks like, or if you do feel isolated or disconnected, there are, there are perhaps alternatives that you can tap into. Yep, there is hope everywhere you look if we can learn how to see. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so before we close out, um, I just wanted to say a big thank you. I'm seeing all of the people who joined us today. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us today. Yeah, um, I'm going to share some of the resources that Tim mentioned, uh, probably in the event listing or in 
the comments about the Parish Collective and about the book as well. And it seems like there, you guys are always having events. So definitely get tapped into all of that stuff. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you to Tim for being here. And that is it. We're signing off for today. <laughs> so thank you, bye, Tim. Bye. <laughs>